0: Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roster. This is episode number three. three. Our guest is Phil Finch, former mayor of Bridgeport, former state senator, former co-chair of the U.S. Climate Protection Task Force for the U.S. Conference of Mayors. It's a mouthful, but welcome.
1: Just here to try to be winning. (laughs) The future. The future.
0: Today and tomorrow. And tomorrow. Today we're talking about how mayors can lead the fight against climate change and do a hell of a lot more, as Bill Finch did as mayor, and continues to do outside of public life.
1: So, Mayor, welcome. Great to be here. You have a wonderful setup. Thanks. Great thanks. way to, great way to pass COVID time.
0: Well, and the paint job in here is what makes it. And it's beautiful. And thank you to you and your friendship for doing that. And so what are,
1: what are some things you would recommend cities do that you don't see too many of them doing? Creating a plan and a vision and incorporating large numbers of people in your community was the key to our success. We created a visionary plan called Be Green 2020, which was as good as any city in the country and we implemented many parts of it. But how did we get there? Before we talk about all the great things we accomplished, we accomplished them because we knew we were where we were going. We had a roadmap. So the first thing we did was we stated the problem. And how did we state the problem? We had ICLEI, an international organization, come in and tell us where the greenhouse gases were coming from within the city of Bridgeport. We found out that only 4% of the greenhouse gases were emitted by city direct activities, schools, playgrounds, uh, buses, city activity, was only 4% of the 100% of the greenhouse gases released within the city boundaries. So we said, you know, we can't just do this for the city. You know, a lot of cities will just have a plan for their own activities. That's 4%. You need a 100% solution. You need to address the whole thing. So we decided we would create a plan that would include the community, uh, the businesses, and the city. And So we created this three-way partnership. We raised quite a bit of money actually to pay for extra uh, employment uh, for specialists and for planners and for uh, plan writers and the like to help us put the plan together. Um, so over the course of eight years, we probably had the business council raise three or $400,000 that we would help them raise it to uh, sponsor uh, all of the big Green activities. So Companies like ONG, which is a big infrastructure company, they contributed. Aquarian contributed, the water company, the utility uh, of on-grid, they contributed because they are all looking for ways to reduce their carbon footprint, and they were large property owners within the boundaries of Bridgeport. So the the Bridgeport plan uh, had the three-way partnership, and then it had a a three-way test. You didn't want to just uh do whatever came to mind, right? You you had to save money, create jobs and reduce greenhouse gases. If it did all three of those things, then we would put that in the plan.
0: Let's talk a little bit about one project specifically that did all three of those things, which is the fuel cell, which is the second largest in North America,
1: right? Anybody who's listening, if you're a sustainability person or a you know, an environmentalist, get off your high horse about fuel cells, all right? They don't like them because they don't understand them. Fuel cells do not combust natural gas. They can run on biogas, which we could create through digestion of sewage and other organic matter, or they can run on natural gas, which we have a lot of in America. Forgetting the fact that some people don't like fracking, and I understand they don't, but the gas is going to come out of the ground whether you combust it or you don't combust it. We have a phenomenal way to not burn this gas, which is coming up out of the ground. We can put it through a fuel cell. We create nearly no pollution. It's almost hard to believe, but you create nearly no pollution, and you create a much more efficient uh, energy generation because you can also capture the quote-unquote waste heat. So if you look at the fuel cell that we got in, Dan Donovan got into New Power, got into Cherry Street, the waste heat, quote unquote, is taken and is given freely to all the apartments in the building. So they don't have a heating bill. Wow. So they're generating electricity, selling it, making a profit, putting it on the grid, and they're getting free heat for all their apartments. So all this technology is available. Mayors can implement it. But unfortunately, a lot of times we have these silos. So environmentalists are in a silo that says no fossil fuels. Well, That means you can't do fuel cells. That means you can't have this huge reduction in greenhouse gases because of your preconceived notions. We've got to open our minds up. We've got to be a lot more deliberate about it. But mayors can do that. So just by opening the door or kicking the door in, we were able to get those kinds of developers in the Bridgeport to do these magnificent things and reduce greenhouse gases within a gritty city by 5%.
0: To that point, Mayor, in the U.S. Conference of Mayors Climate Protection Task Force, you, as the Democrat, were a co-chair. Then you had a Republican co-chair in... Jim Brainerd. From Carmel, Indiana, right? Right. And you've talked a lot about, at least in our conversations, about the great things that Carmel was doing in more of a rural, smaller city or a smaller town area. Right. But can you talk a little
1: bit about that? Jim Brainerd is one of the best mayors in America. He was originally a Connecticut Yankee, so that maybe helps him figure things out better. But uh, he's a transplant out in Carmel, Indiana. He's a Republican. And just a, a little story, backstory to that... We had a terrible problem because in 2000, when Greg Nichols, mayor of Seattle, started the mayors on this course that led to 1100 mayors, Republicans, Democrats, Greens, probably a communist in there. Who knows? Right. All these mayors got together and they said, we're going to fight climate change because we know how to do it for the things we're talking about. Right. So uh, Nichols got it together. And then I got to be chairman with Jim of the, of the committee at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and the Koch brothers behind the scenes started telling all the Republican mayors, you got to get off this climate change uh, pledge, the mayor's climate pledge, because the last item in the climate pledge was price carbon. If you can dump something into the river for free and not get caught, people are probably going to do it, even if they have a conscience their competitor may be doing it; they may have to do it. So you have to price everything. You can't have what they call a negative externality. You got to price it. So the Koch brothers would p- threaten to primary from the right with their all their blind ways to get money in uh, through Citizens United. They were going to um, push these Republican mayors. that were centrists. I was a Democratic centrist. They were Republican centrists. We're getting busy. We're getting stuff done. The Koch brothers didn't like that, evidently. So we had to actually changed the climate pledge to talk about planting trees and uh, celebrating Arbor Day rather than pricing climate. Now, those are all wonderful things. We should have been doing them anyway, but you can't not price carbon. Pricing carbon is the single thing that humanity has to do so that we don't keep dumping it into the atmosphere for free. It's not considered a pollutant, though it happens to trap heat and suffocate our planet and cook it. It's still not considered by EPA uh, a pollutant. So we have to consider it a pollutant, we have to price it, and we have to regulate it.
0: With that, Mayor, what's the one thing you think states should be doing that they aren't currently to assist mayors in leading the fight against climate change?
1: Well, even without states assisting, what all mayors have to do is they have to put this visionary plan together. they got to get everybody involved. They've got to work with the population. One of the coolest things we did was we took our summer jobs program and we made it into a mayor's conservation corps. So they were out doing soil conservation work in the park. They were running as wildlife guards. And youth from the city of Bridgeport that didn't know anything about nature were trained so they could tell all the people going to Pleasure Beach what a piping plover was, what a barn owl was, how do the waves create... Uh, the ecosystem on the beach. So here these kids became in touch with the nature that was all around them. It was a park they couldn't get to until you and others worked really hard to make sure these kids could get there. It was right in their neighborhood they couldn't get there. And they also then went door to door. And when they went door to door they reached tens of thousands of households in Bridgeport to teach them what? Teach them how to get a second recycling bin if they wanted to recycle more. Great thing for us. Saved money, created jobs, and reduced our greenhouse gases. Then They would get a coupon for a reduced rate through Posigen to get solar on their roof. Then they would learn how to adopt a tree, to have a free tree planted by them and the city on their property if they agreed to take care of it. Uh, How to get a rain barrel so that the rain would be diverted away from the sewage plant where it mixed with the dirty water and then had to be boiled out using natural gas to boil out clean rainwater out of the sewage water. It's a Rube Goldberg thing that we've created with our sewers. But if we all took rain barrels and didn't put it into the sewers, but used it in our gardens, used it to release gradually into the grass or anywhere other than the sewers, we'd save money, we'd create jobs, and we'd reduce greenhouse gases. So if you get everybody involved and you save money, you reduce greenhouse gases, and you create jobs, you'll be able to do all the things Bridgeport did. So the state can help by uh, a lot of things. I have talked here for a long time, but let me just continue for a little bit. Uh, I've suggested to the state of Connecticut, unfortunately they haven't done it yet, prioritize the applications for permits. Cities have permits all the time. I want to build a park. Well, then you have to go to the state for coastal area management permits and inland wetland permits, all these kind of things, right? Um, And uh, just to give you an example with Pleasure Beach, it would have been delayed two years if we went through the normal process. We were going to remove two pilings from an old bridge abutment, two pilings, so it would release pollutants from the muck that came up. Very negligible amount, but there's no relative judgment or relative measure, right? It's it's one size screws all. Right? <laughs> so, we had this problem where we're going to take two pilings out, it was going to delay it for 2 years. Smarter minds prevailed and they went to the people doing that and they took it from the bottom of the pile and put it on the top of the pile to get rid of this one quickly. This is negligible. The benefit of opening up this park to the environment is so much greater than the negligible pollutants. So my point to the state was tell the cities they have all this community development block grant funds. They're not spending it on climate change projects. They could be cutting their costs, creating jobs and reducing greenhouse gases if they took their CDBG money and spent it on green projects. So I said to the state, tell every mayor to spend half their money on green projects and you'll expedite their permits for them. They would the mayors would love that, right? Oh, you're yeah. really going to help me out. You're going to not Screw up my project for some silly little thing here. You're going to use your brain, you know, yeah. and prioritize. Thankfully, we had a commissioner. We have a great commissioner now, Katie Dykes. We had a terrific commissioner in Dan Esty, who, with Mackie McClary, who's now up in, in Rhode Island, uh, we were able to prioritize things and get things done quickly. Uh, time is money, you know. Um, I remember when, when the uh, Irene came through and we lost our fishing pier, and uh, it was out of commission for three or four years because FEMA – told us that they hadn't gotten to it yet. So we couldn't fish in Seaside Park off the pier for three to four years. And I said, well, let us put the money up and then you just pay me back. Oh no, it's against our regulations. So I think what states and federal government can do is get the hell out of the way of cities. Don't be their detriment, be their benefactor. Realize, when we talk about Pleasure Beach, just for a second, we went to the DEP at the time as DEP. We had all these sort of policemen telling us why we couldn't do it. We were greener than they were. We were greener than they were. We were reopening a park in an underprivileged neighborhood to bring people back in touch with nature, to reclaim the the island, to push the invasive species out so the plovers could have their their first successful nest, which they did. In decades, it was their first successful nest when people went back out there. I knew that would happen. Anybody who understands ecology knows that would happen. But you have a police mentality where everything's going to be regulated. We're going to try to keep these places without people people have to live in harmony with nature, not apart from nature. So the more you can integrate people into cities and have nature integrated into cities, the better we'll all be in terms of fighting climate change.
0: That's great. Well, Amir, we're just gonna go to a quick break here and we will be back with part two of the interview shortly. This podcast is brought to you by A Better Campaign. We're a strategic communications firm that works with businesses, nonprofits, and candidates to reach the right people, influence their opinions and behavior, and sway them to act effectively. If you're interested in advertising with this podcast, please reach out to me, Brett Broster, at Brett, B-R-E-T-T, at a So again, that's Brett, B-R-E-T-T, at com. We offer competitive rates, and we'd love to work with you. Thank you, and enjoy the show. All right, we're back, and so here with Bill Finch, a good friend. I
1: went and ran a mile. <laughs> nice. The, yeah. I mean, it was oh, the best so smile breath.
0: I've ever... Usain <laughs> Bolt doesn't have anything on you. It's great. <laughs> uh, so, so, mayor, we're going to go into a couple personal questions here. What is the best book you've ever read and why?
1: Well, I named my son Atticus Finch. That could be a clue, you know. Fair. The title's wrong. It's To Kill a Mockingbird. And Finches don't like killing mockingbirds, you know. It, <laughs> the co- quote that Atticus Finch said was it's a sin to kill a mockingbird so i kind of like that as the real title of the book um but you know it just it just shows how you can stand up against the system and you can try to make a difference and there's not always a happy ending um but in terms of environmental books let me just say silent spring is a classic rachel carson uh, i believe she was a biologist or, or or something in in the natural history in natural sciences and she wrote a book about how ddt was accumulating in the in the ecosystem. And if we look at what happened in Connecticut with the osprey, the osprey and the eagle were the two species at the very top of the food chain where the DDT uh, and the DDE, the the eldrin, Eldrin was building up in the fatty tissues. And it was making the eggshells of the birds too thin. And when the mothers would incubate the eggs, they would actually crush their own eggs. And so they were on the way to extinction, the osprey and the eagle. When I left office in Bridgeport, I counted 15 active osprey nests in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The industrial capital of Connecticut, 15 active osprey nests from a species that had one nest when I was a kid in the Rocky Neck State Park. And so that to me, the, the, the great success of the osprey, what did we do? We got rid of the pesticides that were in invading their bodies and and invading our bodies, by the way, Uh, and we restored the fishways. So when when we were in office, we built, along with the Connecticut Fund for the Environment and Save the Sound, we built the fishway in Glenwood Park, and then we built with deep the fish ladder on the the dam at Bunnell's Pond. So the Mianus River, the Baquanik River, many other rivers now have these thriving fisheries of river herring, alewives that are naturally occurring species that were on the decline because we what? We dammed up their rivers. They couldn't go up and lay their eggs like salmon. And we also put pesticides. So if we identify the problem as mayors can really do really quickly, because, you know, you got to go to a church, you got to go to the JC's, you got to (laughs) go somewhere and talk about it. You got to go to a daycare. Somebody's going to ask you, you got to figure these out quick, figure them out quick and then start a plan. So if you create the vision, uh, you'll be able to reduce greenhouse gases and, Mayors can save money, create jobs, and reduce greenhouse gases.
0: In terms of being back on climate change, what is the, if somebody was looking to learn more, what book, I know you're a big reader, what book would you recommend somebody picks up tomorrow?
1: Carl Pope and Mike Bloomberg wrote Climate of Hope. And one of the great things about this book is, you know, we all tend to focus on CO2 because that's the largest emission that warms the planet. But there's also methane and there's also other uh, substances that we're putting into the environment. They go through substance by substance and marketplace by marketplace and level of government by level of government. And they paint the picture of how, if we eliminate the ability to pollute freely without paying for it, and if we use technology and science, And if we work with farmers, farming is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases. We haven't even talked about it, but farming is really critical. Uh, No-till, low-till agriculture, organic farming, all those things. We know how to do it. We just haven't had the leadership that says, you know what, this will be challenging but it will be a great challenge because it's like exercising your body. When you exercise your body, you're stronger. When you exercise your economy, you're stronger. When you exercise your ability to solve problems that are all joining us together, all humanity across country lines. If you join a Paris Accord, if you work together, that's always the way we solve problems. We didn't, you know, we didn't send a man to, to the moon. To, to several men, many men to the was it, what was it, twenty men to the moon, something like that. It was a lot of people. I have to look it up now. It's a good trivia question. Yeah. For your next guest, not for me. <laughs> uh, but you know, um, we didn't do that by denying science and working alone. We worked collaboratively and we embraced science. And when science had new levels of discovery, disproving old ones, we acknowledged those and moved on. That's something we can't do with the current leadership. Well, let's talk about agriculture that you brought up. How do you, how do you see agriculture
0: playing into beating back climate change?
1: Well, you know, when we were in in government, we built, I think it was about 40 community gardens and school gardens, food to the classroom gardens. Um, That did many things. First off, it bound the committee together by making the projects because we all pitched in and dug the holes and made the beds. Uh, And then the kids learned how to weed and what was a weed and what wasn't a weed. Um, And so uh, it bound us together. We educated, we built stronger communities around the gardens. But then we also showed children where their food came from. Many people today have nature deficit disorder. We don't know where the oxygen comes from that we breathe. We don't know where the eggs come from that we eat. We don't know where the clean water comes from that we drink. And so learning how mankind has evolved to manage the natural environment and to live in harmony with the, with the natural environment is a survival tactic. Uh, Unfortunately, lately, we've sort of demonized, well, I shouldn't say lately, we've had a sort of conquest mentality over nature for centuries, but we were getting away from that. Unfortunately, this current administration um, believes that the choices between the economy and the environment, and we all know, who've been working this for a while, that the economy and the environment both get better at the same time when we work together.
0: Definitely. Um, Mayor, what would you give as advice to, let's say, a 20-year-old looking to get into politics?
1: Well, first off, trust in the American system of government. It betrayed us in this past election because the majority vote wasn't counted, um, and it was perverted to give us a minority president who's really clearly out of touch with the, with the evolution that we've gone through. We've learned so much, and now they're back to the George Wallace race-baiting buzzwords, and they're back to the choice between the environment and jobs. Those are things we've evolved past as, as humanity. These people are retro and they're holding on sort of the the white male bastion they're holding on they're worried they're losing the control this was the first year in american history where more uh, babies of color were born than white babies and so i believe the old white establishment is fearful rather than embracing change they're putting walls up and they're getting they're using fear as a tactic so i would say believe in the american system of government because we've always had ups and downs we've always gone through terrible times we've come out the other side we beat back ultra-conservatism and fascism during World War II. Uh, we built back, we broke away from the most powerful empire in the history of the world to get our freedom. So we've always had ups and downs. We're going to get through this. Hopefully we'll elect a different kind of leader for the next four years. And believe in the American system. Believe that you make a difference. Believe that your actions, probably nothing else is, in the world facing us relies more on individual behavior than fighting climate change. We all need to consume less. We all need to consume less electricity, less clothing, less gasoline, less cars. We need to consume less and put our economy into a sustainable and a renewal mode rather than a conquest mode and a destruction mode. You know, there's not an infinite number of land in the West to keep, you know, surging ahead. That's the manifest destiny. Now we need to stop and smell all those roses and figure out how to keep those roses alive.
0: What kind of trends do you, let's say two trends that you see happening in the energy industry that will benefit the climate overall in the next 10 years.
1: Well, isn't it just amazing and exciting and the wind energy that's coming, coming our way? You know, I believe windmills are beautiful. I would love to see them everywhere. Um, I see a windmill and I see mankind communing with nature, mankind living in harmony with nature, using the natural air circulation to create the energy we need. When we lose energy, we lose not only our cell phones, but we lose ability to call in an emergency. We lose medical equipment. We lose the ability to uh, to communicate and to heat our homes, to to move our, our, our transport systems. So energy is really key, and I see the trend toward renewable energy as one that you just can't stop at this point. It is the, it is the economy of the future. Uh, and so that's really exciting. I think the private sector is doing much more than the public sector. And if we look at where wealthy people are putting their investments, they're not putting it into non-renewables, they're putting it into renewables. And so I see really great signals from the economy, thanks to people like Mike Bloomberg, who've laid a lot of these things out in his books and his writings and his examples being mayor for 12 years in the great city of New York, the greatest city in the world, I think. And he showed people a new way of doing things that was largely uh, government and market driven. And why not? Those are the tools at our disposal. And I know
0: electric vehicles are obviously the proliferation of electric vehicles is occurring. Yeah, and I
1: just got my first Prius.
0: Yeah, so what do you think? How is it, I know you've driven a Chevy Volt in the past as yeah. well when yeah. you were with Ford Escape.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, electric vehicles probably are the way we should have gone when we first had vehicles. There was the fight between uh, Ford and Edison, and Edison famously remarked that, to Henry Ford that it would just be too dangerous to have gasoline, this highly flammable substance, in everybody's neighborhood. It'd be dangerous and unhealthy and smelly and polluting, and he didn't win. <laughs> but that was because the way of transporting electricity at the time, our grid was non-existent. If we had the the grid today there would be no, no doubt that we would go towards electric vehicles. They're more efficient, they're quieter, they're better for the environment, and so on and so forth. I also think we need to get out of our cars and walk. Have an electric vehicle, but walk more. If you look at neighborhoods where people walk more, they're healthier, and that's uh, another part of living in harmony with nature is to keep our bodies fit as long as we can to enjoy this beautiful planet that we have for as long as we can. Definitely. Well, Mayor, I
0: can't thank you enough for all your time. Do you have any uh, last words you wanna, you wanna give to the to the audience?
1: Well, I'd encourage everybody to go on the internet and take a look at the Be Green 2020 report. It's on the uh, Regional Plan Association website. It's probably the best report. That and Plan YC that Mike Bloomberg did, I think are probably the two best reports out there. And they create great roadmaps. And the reason we did it was not just to make Bridgeport the greenest city in New England, which we did, but it is to show a way for all the cities to be green and to lead the planet. Uh, as many mayors around the world are doing right now. Thanks to, again, people like Mike Bloomberg and others.
0: Well, Mayor, I can't thank you enough for your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will put a link to the B Green 2020 plan as well as Plan NYC in the show notes. And thanks again for listening to Win the Future and tune in to our next episode. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.